listening to the Recovering Methodism Podcast, a global Methodist voice for navigating life and ministry in the 21st century, tackling the issues impacting the church, and recovering the distinctly Methodist practices to participate in the next great awakening. And now your hosts, David Cady and Caleb Spiker. Happy New Year, Caleb. Happy New Year, Dave. It is wonderful to be into 2024. Oh, I mean, 2023 was a good year. Fantastic year. But I am, you know, you can't look back. No. Got to go forward. You do. You do. Welcome to the Recovering Methodism podcast coming to you from Riverside Church in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about baptism. Excellent. Yeah. We're going to talk about baptism as our big idea conversation, and then uh, break into one of the books from Caleb's Library that deals specifically uh, with baptism from a practical standpoint. That's right. And then Ministry Toolbox, we're going to talk about how local churches might practice baptism on a regular basis uh, within the framework of Wesleyan theology. So big idea, baptism. What is it? Go! So baptism is a sacrament, and by it being a sacrament, we mean that it is something that Jesus did that we do as well. So baptism, communion, um, and you could make the argument if you're a Roman Catholic, there are a few more that count too, uh, but for well, us as Protestants, yeah. it is uh, one of the, the two big ones, baptism we, and communion. We have, we have two that are universally practiced in just about every Christian tradition, Christian tradition communion and baptism, and as you mentioned, uh, Roman Catholics, um, I think in the Council of Trent, added five more. Um, and yet uh, at the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant reformers said, uh, we'll just stick with the two. Yeah. Yeah. So baptism as a sacrament, uh, something Jesus did that we do. I would also add language. It initiates people into life the church. I was just going to say this. It's something through which God works. That's my understanding of sacramental theology. It's not just an ordinance that we do, mm-hmm. but something through which God works from a Wesleyan perspective, through which God imparts grace into our lives. And so with an understanding of that, uh, you just said something that I think we need to touch on. We initiate people into the life of the church through baptism. That's right. So baptism is, uh, by default, the initiation rite of the church. That's right. And we see that recorded in um, our liturgy of baptism, both from our previous denominational heritage, as well as how we practice it now. I'm just reading the introduction of baptism in uh, Our Great Redeemer's Praise, which is really the unofficial hymn book of global Methodism. Um, Brothers and sisters in Christ, through the sacrament of baptism, uh, we are initiated into Christ's body and as his holy church, and we are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation, given new birth through water and the Spirit. All this is God's gift to us, offered freely and without price. Very similar to what I've been used to mm-hmm. uh, in the United Methodist process, but that word initiated is right there in the liturgy. And so let's talk a little bit about that, Caleb. Uh, why would someone need to be initiated into the church? What's the concept of initiation from, from maybe an ancient Christian practice to how we practice it today? What's the concept of initiation uh, mean to us as we, as we use it in reference to baptism? Well, I think really we should start with the baptism of Jesus. Um, it is worth noting 
that at the time of Jesus' baptism, he lived a pretty ordinary and obscure life. Yeah, 30 years, right? approximately, right? 30 years of just, you don't hear much about it. Yep. Just nothing said. Um, you know, because, and I, I was um, I was thinking about this uh, earlier this morning, you know, as part of the book we're reading, uh, they were, that we'll talk about later. Um, you know, I was rereading the chapter on baptism, and uh, there was a line that got me, you know, thinking it's, um, and, you know, if I was writing the Gospels, the clouds would part, and the dove would come down, and the voice would have, from heaven would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased at the crucifixion. Right. Or at the resurrection or right. at the ascension. Right. Not for this nobody rabbi carpenter who in obscurity gets baptized in the Jordan by his cousin John. Okay. Um, and I think part of what we're supposed to understand from that is that uh, that God's grace given to us in baptism, even if you are the son of God is not a um, not a response to something awesome you have done. It's not something you have earned and merited, but you are initiated into the life of the church out of obscurity. And in our case where we baptize infants, you're initiated into the life of the church out of infancy. Right. You know, when you have added nothing to the value of the church. Right. And really nothing to the value of your family even. Yet we initiate you and we invite you into our life collectively as a symbol of God's love. Right. You um, you hit it the nail on the head when it's you really have you've not done anything to contribute any value to the process, and yet God has welcomed you into His family, right? And so this concept of initiation um, is you have to start somewhere, and we start with God's invitation to us. Um, even without our even acknowledging it in infant baptism, right? Yep. This is God's work. Baptism is God's work in our lives. Um, I love the imagery of, of Jesus' baptism uh, prior to him having any notoriety at all, mm-hmm. um, prior to him doing anything in ministry. Uh, it, was, it was the beginning, and that's, maybe that's the point of this, is that baptism is not an end point, it's a beginning point yeah. of the Christian journey. Yeah, I mean, even, even when Jesus finishes you know, doing battle with the devil for 40 days in the wilderness, like that would have been a reasonable time for the Father to be like, yeah, that's my boy. Fair enough. But as it is, you know, Jesus had done nothing noteworthy by worldly standards. Right, he'd been born of a virgin, but I mean, that seems more like what Mary did, really. Well, clearly, clearly, it's a it's a celebration of all that God was going had done and was going to do in the life of Jesus. And so, when we celebrate baptism as an initiation into the body of Christ, we're saying to an individual, regardless of the age or station in life, um, you are you are welcomed into what God is doing in this community of faith, and in the church universal, God has a place for you, and this is God's process of initiating you into this practice, this uh, this community. Um, 
And so that leads us to the other word that always stands out for me in communion liturgy is the word incorporated. Not only are we initiated into uh, the body of Christ, we are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. Um, what's the word incorporated mean for you, Caleb? What's, what comes out in your mind when you hear the word incorporated? I mean, that's a very specific legal term, right? Like, that's, that's not... Um, you know, when you talk about incorporating a business, yeah. you know, there is a skin that is placed into the game in that process. Absolutely. Um, it is a merger that is, um, that's contractual. It's covenantal. It is covenantal. It also is, um, how do I say it? So if you've ever lived in a town and you lived outside the corporation limit, mm. Versus living inside the corporation limit, um, there are certain things that go with that, right? So yep. yeah, you're incorporated. So sometimes if you're in a small put on group, village elections, you got it. And so either you're a part of trash gets picked up by the village. You, you don't have to water, sewage. You get a vote, whatever. The cops won't go beyond a certain point to answer a call because it's outside their jurisdiction, mm-hmm. right? And so when a person is initiated into Christ's holy church. And then secondly, as the liturgy says, incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. It means that we're included, mm-hmm. right? That's really what it boils down to. We're included into what, what God has done to save the world. And that is both as a recipient and as an active participant, I think. Right. And so, um, again, my understanding of baptism is everything we've already talked about. And then on top of this is it is... Um, generically, a call to ministry. Hmm. Okay. Now, obviously, people grow into their calls uh, to ministry, and and it gets fleshed out as as uh, as life develops, and people discern gifts and call. Um, but people have often asked me, you know, when were you called to ministry? And I always say, at my baptism. Yeah. You know, I was nine months old. I had no idea what that was going to look like, but that's when it began, by 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 virtue of the theology of baptism. Um, it's part of that that call process. Um, in your experience, Caleb, do you you find that people um, throughout the life of the church struggle with conflicting ideas of baptism? Because what we're describing is really a, a thoroughly Wesleyan approach to this, mm-hmm. and, and maybe you've experienced um, situations where people have, um, we'll just say, differing opinions about baptism. Yeah, the uh, uh, the fancy Greek word that we are uh, describing here is paedo-baptism, okay. right? Which is uh, the baptism of those who, um, you know, paedo being your know, child, uh-huh. um, you know, those who are uh, being in, brought into the life of the church simply as uh, simply by virtue of who brings them, okay. Um, but there is also floating around in the dark underbelly of the American church, credo-baptism. And that is? Uh, baptism reserved only for those who can declare allegiance to Jesus. Okay. And so what we have, at least in our circles, is this uh, continued dynamic within the life of the church um, of paedo-baptism and credo-baptism, and some who will... Um, adhere to pedo baptism and some who refuse that and want only credo baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, as a pastor, how do you navigate that? Right. Well, I mean, as uh, as someone who's baptized at seven because they grew up in a credo Baptist household, 
um, you know, I think part of it and part of what, you know, the, the pastor at our church growing up, Harold Schimfessel, uh, did beautifully was um, being able to articulate that even though I was uh, seven and making an affirmation of faith in my baptism, that I still had nothing of value to offer to the church. That's probably accurate, right? I mean, you yep. probably had nothing. I mean, yeah, do you remember the, the practice? You remember the event? Uh, you probably answered some questions and acknowledged your faith in Jesus. Uh, do you have a memory of, of how you felt at that moment? Do you have a memory of what you were answering to that you said, you know, this is definitely, you know, what I'm answering to and I understand it fully? Um, my main memory from that day was that my, uh, friend Ben had a new watch that after the baptism, you know, we all went back to children's church and we just played with his new digital watch, the, throughout the children's church activities. Gotcha. See, now my experience was totally different. I was baptized uh, at nine months old. Uh, and just for the record, I was baptized nine days prior to the EUB uh, Methodist merger in 1968. Mm. Nine days prior. Um, and so I was baptized as a nine-month-old in the EUB church, became United Methodist two weeks later by default. Nobody asked me. And uh, that's that's what I became <laughs> and grew up in that tradition and uh, went to seminary through you know answering a call to ministry and ordained as a United Methodist pastor. Thirty years later, just about disaffiliated. Now I'm a global Methodist pastor, right? But the history of that just always intrigues me. That for whatever reason it was an Easter Sunday, and I was baptized literally nine days before the merger. Hmm. Can't make that stuff up. Nope. But I've always appreciated the fact that at that point in my life, even though I had no ability to answer for myself and really no knowledge of what was going on, um, somebody in my household and somebody in my church family did know what was going on and made that means of grace available to me at that age. And I, I can honestly say I've never had a desire uh, in the past 56 years uh, to do anything different. Hmm. So it was sufficient for me. And uh, I've had friends who are credo-baptists say, uh, literally someone said to me, you might make a good Christian if you ever were baptized. <laughs> I'm like, well... Maybe I'll get to that level someday, buddy, but right now I'm going to practice what I've been practicing, and it's, you know, worked out so far so good. <laughs> uh, and so I would just say it this way. People struggle with these conflicting ideas of baptism, and uh, as a friend of mine used to say regarding baptism, um, it's really water, water everywhere in the book of Acts. Um, there's no distinct practice of baptism in the early church. Yep. Uh, the earliest symbol of baptism is a sh seashell. Historically, that's the earliest symbol, which symbolized the scooping of water and pouring over an individual's head. Uh, and the Credo Baptists say, no, 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 it's about immersion. And yet the earliest symbol is a seashell. And so, well, you know, those early Christians got a lot of things wrong, Dave. You got, you yeah. got Paul in it, the it Book of took, Acts. It took American Christians in the 18th century and 19th century to finally get yeah. this Christian thing right. To right the ship, right? I mean, if it wasn't for American Christians at the first part of the 19th century, like we would still just be wallowing in well, all of the foolishness of the past. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. So I think... Maybe the idea we're trying to convey here is that baptism as a practice of the Christian church is about an, the initiation of a person into the life of the church, 
whereby God is um, incorporating them to the work of God in their life. Um, and some would say that that is it's just a uh, it's just a religious ritual with very little meaning. And yet, those of us who see it as a sacrament say, "Wait a second, um, God is doing something very, very significant in this moment. It is an impartation of grace as a means of grace into a person's life." Um, and so that's where I lean on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we baptize people of all ages in different ways, and we'll get to that later on in the podcast, God is at work in that process, whether a person is answering questions themselves or whether uh, they are unable to answer those questions and it's being done um, more to them than with them. Yeah. Um, this is really God's work in a person's life. And... Um, that's, I think, very in line with a Wesleyan understanding of, of baptism. Anything else you want to say about this before we go to the library? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'll say is that as, as someone who grew up in a credo-baptist house and uh, chose to baptize my children and all when they were infants, um, yeah, I, I am convinced there is no better picture of God's love for humanity than the baptism of a wiggly, crying, poopy-diapered infant. Um, Because the reality is, in the grand scheme of things, even the Billy Grahams of the world, the Mother Teresas of the world, the Tim Tebows of the world, have virtually nothing to offer God. I just love the fact that you put Tim Tebow up there with Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. Oh, I love that. Hey, I I am a product of my circumstances. <laughs> you certainly are, but and I would agree with that theologically that we come helpless before a living and loving God who uh, desires to make us part of His family. Um, so as we get to the the the, the toolbox, uh, we're going to be able to tackle some some practical ways that gets done with people of all ages uh, who come to us for baptism with perhaps varying belief on the practice of that and uh, maybe kind of navigate that for for ourselves and for those who who are listening today. And now it's time for Caleb's Library. Uh, folks, we're back for Caleb's Library, one of my favorite parts of uh, our podcast, in which we take a look at a book uh, that Caleb has read or is reading or reread. Um, and he's going to look at a book uh, today. Uh, give us the title of this book, Caleb. So this is Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life by Tish Harrison Warren. All right. And how old is this book, you think? about Less than five years old. Less than five years old. the Christianity Today Book of the Year and. 2019, 2020. Uh, oh, well, how about that? 2016. So it was, it was the book of the year in 2017. All right. So six, seven years. Yeah. Relatively new. Yep. Liturgy of the Ordinary. Mm-hmm. And so as I understand the book, uh, you call it the, at least your kids call it the peanut butter and jelly book. Yep. My mother-in-law calls it the peanut butter and jelly book. Is that who, is that who yeah. calls it? Yep. Because it is a, a picture of... Uh, peanut butter and jelly on the cover. 
And so the concept here is that we can experience the, the uh, a rhythm practice of liturgy and God's presence in our lives through ordinary daily living. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so how does this relate to baptism? So uh, Tish Warren's first chapter is on baptism. Um, and you know, she has a chapter on confession and a chapter on, um, you know, uh, communion and you know, she takes all the different normal rhythms of, of life, work, play, rest, and then, you know, kind of teases out how we can do these things more intentionally and more thoughtfully with an eye towards, um, towards the gospel. And her first chapter, uh, is about, um, baptism and its relationship to waking up in the morning. That's interesting. Yeah. So she uh, she says, here's the thing. All of us wake up and we have bad breath and messy hair and we're just human. That's a true story. Right? Like, like when we wake up in the morning, like we have done nothing yet. Like we haven't even gone through the process of putting on the identity that we're going to show the world. Absolutely. We are just, we need a little work. Yeah. We're just, we're just blank. Okay. Um, you know, we're groggy, bad breath, messy hair. Um, and it should be a reminder to us, uh, of the way that we are before God, right? That, that our only identity in that moment is that we are, messy-haired, bad-breathed, groggy children of a God who loves us. Okay. Um, and you know, she, she continues to uh, you know, develop that theme through the chapter and then through the rest of the book, right? Because that, like for her, this is really that foundational piece of being a Christian. And, and you know, I think she's right about that, right? Like baptism is sort of the foundational starting place for the, the Christian journey. Um, it, it is the starting place and the foundation to which we return. Mm-hmm. I have this image of a mind. I remember uh, Luther, whenever he was tempted or whenever he failed or you know succumbed to sin, he would always come back to, I am baptized. Well, and Luther uh, taught his people. Uh, you wake up and you make the sign of the cross and you remember your baptism. That's exactly right. That is the way to begin each day. Right. So it's not something that's that starts out the Christian life and then you forget about it, but it's the foundation on which you keep coming back to. Yep. Okay. Because so, all of the other practices of our life, all the other disciplines of our life, you know, without this fundamental, at the very center, conviction that we are gods because God loves us, all of those disciplines can turn into a way of earning God's love and acceptance. Right. Um, but when we start from the place of we are uh, naked and needy before a holy God and he chooses to love us anyway, right? it radically transforms the entire, um, the entire outlook of the Christian life. It really does. And so that's always been a, a part of um, my ministry process um, that always caused concerns for me when people, you know, uh, indicated that it had to be a person's choice, 
and they had to be able to understand. And I'm like, you know, I appreciate that very, very much. I really do, except for uh, it feels as though that, that there's this different level of citizenship. Those who were baptized as babies and have no memory of it, and those who have made this profound decision to be baptized at a later date, and uh, and it's not dual citizenship at all. Yeah. Okay. So I like this concept of uh, starting that that Tish makes in the book of starting out the day. And how does she tie in baptism to this? Is there a daily practice that she's referring to that she's trying to tie to baptism? Shower, brushing the teeth. What, what does she talk about there? I mean, I think she's she's largely um, encouraging that that Lutheran practice, right? Like when you wake up in the morning, like acknowledging your breath is bad and your hair is messy and you are groggy and you know if someone asks you to do complicated math, you're going to fail. That's okay because in that moment, your soul identity is the most important part of your identity, and that's that you are loved by God. Right. And so maybe you've had this experience before. I know I have, where someone will say, you know, I was I was baptized a long time ago, whether it was as a, as a baby or as a young person or a teenager, and but it didn't mean anything. Have you, really? You ever heard someone say that? I... I, it's, it's good. Like I've heard people say it, but no one said it to me. And that's a good thing because we would have had a conversation that would have had them like me less probably. Well, I've, I've worked a few Emmaus walks on in my life uh, over the past 30 years, um, probably closer to, to 50 Emmaus weekends and at least, and that conversation has often been shared where someone would say, you know, I was on a spring break I was a you know a freshman in college, and they were doing baptisms in the ocean. I decided to do it, but I didn't know what I was doing, and it didn't mean anything to me, or didn't mean anything. And I'm like, well, you know, actually, maybe it did mean something. Um, Why do you think you're here right now? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe in that moment, um, you were baptized and initiated into God's mighty uh, holy church and incorporated in God's mighty acts of salvation, and you really had nothing to offer in that process. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're here today having this conversation and this Emmaus weekend is an indication that, that God has been faithful to his promise. That's right. Right? And so I, I always I, I always try to pastorally push back on this concept that it didn't mean anything. You know, good for you for being pastoral. <laughs> I, you know, that's... Maybe someday I'll grow into that too. That'd be nice. So uh, how does, how does Tish... Um, sum up the end of the first chapter when and how does that follow through with the rest of the book well yeah so um the end of the first chapter sort of transitions into the rest of it she's like look all of these disciplines and all of these practices they have to start from recognizing um that you are a beloved child of god um like none of this is is something that um, you know, none of this is uh, like none of the Christian life is about earning the love and acceptance of God because you already have it. Right. So give us an indication as you walk through the chapters of the book real quickly here. What are some of the other daily practices that she touches on? So 
um, from there, she goes to uh, making the bed. I, mean, I think she reads Jordan Peterson or exactly. something. Exactly. Um, you know, brushing your teeth, uh, losing your keys, eating leftovers, fighting with your spouse, checking email, right? So, like, all these very, you know, uh, regular, ordinary, mundane things. Um, but she talks about how making the bed is about, uh, you know, make your bed intentionally because it's, it's part of having a ritualized ordered life. Sure. Um, you know, uh, brushing your teeth because it's part of taking care of the body that you've been given. Right. Um, you know, losing keys and, and recognizing, um, the, the confession of that, that, you're fallible and in need of stuff happens. Help. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, she goes all the way through, um, all the way to the final chapter is on, uh, sleeping, you know, Sabbath rest in the work of God. You recognize that even when we stop, God doesn't. One of the quotes uh, I found on Goodreads from this book says the new life into which we are baptized is lived out in days, hours, and minutes. God is forming us into a new people, and the place of that formation is in the small moments of today. Hmm. And so it sounds like what she's done in the book is taken common everyday experiences that we can all relate to and sort of um, sanctified them in a way to say, listen, these are sacred, even though it's ordinary and mundane. God is still at work in this, and our identity in Christ uh, gets lived out and fleshed out in these ordinary moments. Yeah, she uh, tells the story of um, having a friend who uh, was a missionary in Calcutta um, who left because, you know, there's just nothing exciting going on here in the West. you got to go onto the, the fringes and the, the cutting edge of where God is moving and doing stuff. Right. Um, and that the, the person was initially really distraught to find out that even in Calcutta, most of life is very mundane. Very mundane. It's doing chores and sitting with people and, um, you know, taking care of your body. And it's it's not all that different, right? Um, but the, the reality is that God works in the middle of all those places. One of the other quotes I found that I really liked was, everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> and the reality is, in, in the you know, there are certain rhythms to life wherever you go, and there are things you have to do um, to to make life what it is. But God is present and at work in those moments. And so the idea here is that as we live out our identity in Christ as baptized people in the Church of Jesus, um, that's reflected in the reality that we are we are wholly loved by our Father in Heaven, who made us and who calls us by name. That's right. So, recommend the book. Yes. I've heard you talk about this before, and uh, it's made a uh, huge impact on you and Cindy and the boys and your life together. Uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. Yep. Yep. All right. Appreciate the insight, and uh, let's transition to the toolbox. Sounds like a plan. Now for some practical wisdom for church leaders. Let's open up the pastor's toolbox.
tell you what, Dave, I have been getting more use out of the United Methodist Book of Resolutions. Oh, Caleb. What do you do? You have it propped up under your chair because your chair was wiggly? I, that's exactly what I've done. <laughs> well, at least it's useful to you, right? Hey, <laughs> if it had been this useful while I was still a United Methodist. Well, <laughs> it's been redeemed, apparently. It's, it's been redeemed. All right. So we're here at the toolbox portion of our podcast, and we just want to talk about some practical ways that we do ministry. And with our theme of baptism today... We thought we'd just kind of walk through the process of, uh, of how we do baptism here at Riverside Church and how Caleb and I have done it in other contexts. Um, so let's just first talk about um, varying modes of baptism. As uh, Wesleyan Christians, um, my understanding is we have a general practice of three different modes that we allow for uh, in the life of the church. One, obviously, is baptism by sprinkling, mm-hmm. and one is baptism by immersion. Yep. And the third one is not as popular. I don't know if I've ever done it, and the, the third one is... Super soaker. Super soaker, right? The pouring, right? The pouring of water on a person. But you're, you're, you're talking about an actual super soaker. Yeah. Never done that. Never will. <laughs> uh, but pouring, traditionally, is a, yeah. a third where water is literally poured over an individual. Um. I think most people listening are familiar with, with sprinkling. They've seen it with infants, with young children, teenagers, adults. That's often the, a practice that's, that's done in the life of a church, especially a Methodist church. Yeah. Uh, immersion, right, is another practice that um, is not as practically popular in the life of a Methodist church because the means aren't necessarily there to do it. Mm-hmm. They can be. They can be. They can be. So um, let's just talk a little bit about first baptism by the mode of sprinkling. Mm-hmm. And so let's just say, Caleb, um, parents come to you as one of the pastors here at Riverside or pastor in another church where you've led and said, hey, um, we have a, a new baby mm-hmm. and we'd like to get her baptized. What's your process there? Yeah. Um, I mean, the... The first part of that conversation um, is helping the parents to uh, understand the covenant that's being made, right? Uh, their responsibility to that covenant and right. the responsibility that the church is entering into. Yep. Um, you know, I I've occasionally had you know grandparents want a, a child baptized, and it makes me a little bit uneasy because, you know, especially if the kid is, is a couple states away, it's like the local church is making a covenant that we expect the church universal to live out, but it, it, it becomes a little bit, um, disconnected. Um, because yeah, I mean that, that covenant that the, the local church makes, um, that this child surrounded by steadfast love would be, you know, brought up in the way that leads to life eternal. You know, I mean, that's, uh, the, I take that covenant extremely seriously because the people at the church in Marysville that took that covenant seriously is why I'm sitting here today. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, helping parents understand, you know, this is, this is a covenant that you're entering into to show up and that we're entering into to 
to be the body of Christ around you. So let me push back on that. I agree completely, first of all, I, with that theological position. But let me push back a little bit and say that, that life in 2024 in Metro Columbus may be a little different than life in Union County in the late 80s, early 90s. In that, I'm not talking about social norms or anything. I'm talking about transient society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um do your parents still live in the same house that you grew up in? Sure do. Yes, they do. However, we have people who come uh, who will come here for a year or two because they're teaching at OSU or they're students at the law school uh, or they've got a job in Columbus and are working their way up a corporate ladder and will be moving on to another location in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we also have families that maybe they grew up here and have moved to Chicago, and yet this is where their, their parents still participate. Mm-hmm. This is where they grew up, where they were baptized, and they want their child baptized here too. Mm-hmm. Okay? So um, my general practice is we never refuse baptism, but we do educate, yeah. and we do encourage. And we take seriously the, the vows and promises that we're making as a congregation and the pastoral responsibility to say to that family, uh, are you worshiping in Chicago? Do you have a church in Chicago? Yep. Well, no, we haven't failed. Can I help you find one? Yep, that's right. right. So it's more than just getting them on the calendar, <laughs> right, and putting their name in the bulletin and filling out a certificate. It's the exactly. pastoral work, congregational work, um, and the parental work of saying, okay, how do we take this seriously enough to to make sure that we're actually living up to what we're saying we're going to live up to? Yep. Is that fair? Yeah, I I completely agree. Okay, so. Um, what about the what about the family that comes to you and says um, um, our 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 child has not been baptized because we want that to be their decision mm. <clears throat> and that but may... we'd like you to dedicate him yeah or her yeah what do you do there I say I'm just a lowly associate pastor you need to talk to Dave oh that's nice <laughs> that's nice that's nice um, how have you handled that in other contexts. So strangely enough, that question has never come up. Really? I mean, that was the question that my mother asked Charlie Cecil uh, 35 years ago. Uh-huh. And Charlie said flat out, I will not uh, dedicate an infant. Okay. Well, it's not our practice, right? It's not theologically no. in line with the uh, practice of a Wesleyan Methodist congregation. So I was faced with that early on in ministry, and I asked one of my mentors, and he said, well, just do a dry baptism. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't comfortable with that answer, because that seems like we're dodging the bullet here. Um, But there there is a way, I think, to try to um, surround a family with a congregation, pray for that child, bless that child. Um, I've never seen biblical evidence of an infant dedication or baby dedication. No, yeah. and they point. I've often people point to Jesus at the you know at the temple when he's presented at the temple, and I'm like, you do realize he was being circumcised on the eighth day, and being marked by a covenant of mm-hmm. God's promise, right? Isn't that what? And and being uh, set apart and consecrated for the ministry of the Lord, right? And so. There's a little difference in the theology when someone says baby dedication versus baptism. Uh, but I don't want to... Um, I want to try to honor where people are and say, okay, how can we have 
the church surround you and your family and pray for your child and um, promise to work alongside of you. Um, but let's take that a little further. And now the, the child is eight, nine years old or a teenager going through confirmation mm. and um, you know they've never been baptized. What is the, 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 the catechesis necessary for that person now who is now, quote, making this decision on their own, unquote, yeah. um, but clearly has not been discipled. It's new to the church. And as you talk to the families, you talk to the, the young person, um, it's really not their decision still. It, mm. It's the parents mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. well, they're at that age, they should be baptized. What do you do there, Caleb? I mean, I, is it all that different from baptizing an infant? It's not. It's really not. Okay. Uh, I think we need to meet people where they are mm-hmm. and uh, help them celebrate God's work in their life at whatever stage of spiritual formation where uh, that they are at at that point in their life. Um, you know, as we've said in previous contexts, the gospel can be offensive. We don't need to be. Um, so how do we, how do we help folks live out their faith with their children and their teenagers and their adults in their lives in ways that are helpful and not harmful and allow space for God to work in their life. And so, um, we just had confirmation a couple Sundays ago. We had, um, a little over a dozen or so, 14, 15 kids confirmed and as it turned out, there were four kids that had not been baptized. Yeah. And so for them, it really wasn't confirmation. It was really a profession of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for three of those young people, um, they preferred uh, to be immersed. Mm-hmm. And so what did we do, Caleb? What did we do? We uh, went right into the heart of Philistia uh, and drove up to Costco and found ourselves an inflatable hot tub and fired it up and filled it up and we had we have a uh, portable baptistry. You now. betcha we do. Four hundred dollars. It's pretty really good deal. not pricey at all. Um, made for a wonderful um, environment for baptism by immersion, and we hope to use that into the future and mm-hmm. it's it's available as individuals and families continue to um, take next steps of faith in Jesus here at Riverside Church. And now, ironically, on that same day in which we had some of those baptisms, we also had a teenager who hadn't been baptized. And when I talked with her and gave her the option, she said, no, I just want to be sprinkled. Mm -hmm. It was just fascinating, right? Where, Where some are very adamant and others are like, no, sprinkling's fine with me. And I, and we did that in the same service, didn't we? Yeah. And uh, what was interesting is the congregational dynamic of that. I didn't sense, at least here at Riverside, that there were first-class citizens and second-class citizens. I felt like the congregation responded equally uh, to both contexts. And if you remember that service, this young 13, 14-year-old young lady was being baptized. She often works in our nursery on Sunday mornings. And so a little three-year-old who was not related to her, uh, yeah. I think of her own accord, uh, stepped out of her seat with her parents and walked up to this 13-year-old at her baptism and held her hand yeah. through the whole ceremony. Yeah. And it was just beautiful. Not something you could orchestrate or plan, 
uh, it was just kind of an amazing thing as this young lady was answering questions that you and I were asking her. Uh, this little three-year-old uh, was kind of giving her the emotional support um, and encouragement just by her mere presence holding her hand. I thought yep. it was beautiful. It was. It was. Um, so here at Riverside, we have a kind of a unique liturgy that was developed before I got on board here several years ago um, that uh, was developed um, by the previous pastor, which we've we kept. And we use three sources of water. Uh, one is ordinary Columbus City tap water, and one is water from the Jordan River from a previous trip to Israel. And one is uh, water that we've collected from a well that we've dug at some location throughout the world through our partnership with Living Water International. And the liturgy we use is that the common ordinary tap water represents God's presence in the common ordinary aspects and daily routines of life, which we just talked about. Yep. Um, the water from the Jordan River signifies our part of God's covenant to Abraham and God's people in Israel and how we are grafted in to God's family through faith in Jesus. Uh, but those promises of the Old Testament are promises to us. I believe as Rich Mullins would have said, that one star he saw had been lit for me. <laughs> I like that. He's talking about Abraham. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and then the, of course the living water, uh, the wells that we dig throughout the world uh, indicate our common understanding of our call to mission and ministry for the sake of Christ in the world. Um, what would you say to a congregation or maybe to a pastor that doesn't necessarily have that level of tradition in the church that but maybe could develop their own unique uh, contextual liturgy that helps celebrate the ministry of, of the redeemed in their church? What would you say to them? How do they do that? Well, I remember when um, when I had my first baptism there at uh, uh, St. Paul's, uh, I called our friend Tom Hanover and I said, you know, what what do I do about getting the water ready? He said, well, first thing you do is you get a, a pot, you fill it with water and you put it on the stove. I said, okay. And then what? He's like, then you boil the hell out of it. <laughs> I said, Tom, are you serious? He's like, no, I'm not serious. I'm like. What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, which is just to say, you know, like I, there, uh, I think there are a lot of ways that we can, um, that we can do uh, context-specific, meaningful things. Um, you know, in our context, in uh, the heart of Columbus, using you know Columbus tap water makes sense. Um, you know, there are other communities that uh, the river runs through in a certain way uh, that going and collecting some of that river water would be really meaningful. Like I would think, you know, if I was the pastor of uh, a church in Pittsburgh, I would consider getting water from all three rivers that, that merge. Absolutely. Right. Um, you know, I think, you know, if you were, uh, you know, if we didn't have the liturgy that we did, I think getting some water from the Scioto and some water from the Olentangy, yep, um, you know, would would make sense. Lake Erie, if you're up on the lake, yeah, right. Um, and so, even in small towns, there are places uh, that are meaningful to your people, mm -hmm. right? That you can incorporate that water into the liturgy of your baptism. Yeah, you know, um, I can't remember who 
who I was talking to about this, but they were saying that in their church they have um, the family bring some water from home, and then like the sponsor brings some water. I love that. Um, you know, and you, know, you have this, and then I think their third is Jordan River water. Sure. Um, sure. But you know, just I think any time that we can be uh, more intentional um, and more thoughtful to help mark the passage of time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's worth making that investment of energy to do so. I think so too. And I think it helps the congregation connect in deeper ways to the practice of baptism in, in their particular context. Um, I have seen uh, practice of baptism, especially with infants, but it can be done at any age, um, where the congregation literally gets out of their seats and surrounds the individual, and it's almost like a uh, Lion King moment where the baby's lifted up, right, um, and the people surround them. And that's it's a beautiful imagery um, of the congregation uh, surrounding an individual uh, where you're literally being baptized into the body of Christ, yep. uh, that it's not um, you know something that's separate from the congregation, but the congregation is literally a part of it. Yeah, and I've been a part of um, some more liturgical churches that there's really like one good door to come in, and, you know, they leave the baptismal font by that door. So as you walk in, you can remember your baptism, and it's that, like, passing through the waters of baptism brings you into the sanctuary. Absolutely. That's always been a meaningful practice for me as well in places where that's available, where you touch the water or make the sign of the cross on your forehead to remember your baptism and to be thankful. Um, anything else you'd add to our toolbox conversation today? Um, one of the things maybe we might, because I know this is really, really part of uh, your call to ministry, is what do you do after baptism? You know, what is mm. there, what's the discipleship look I mean, are you done at that point? Obviously, we've talked about this. This is initiation. Yeah. So um, maybe just real quick here, you could touch on ways that people could do follow-up following baptism to help families live into their promises or individuals live in their, to their promises and help congregations live into those promises as well. What's that look like from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in the context that I've seen, um, that I've seen it done the most faithfully. Um, yeah, I, I think about a, a family who had their, uh, twins baptized and their discipleship group was up there with them. That's nice. Right. Very uh, nice. And, you know, like, I, I think that that is like, if we think about, um, you know, our discipleship group, covenant group, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, share group being sort of this extended gospel family. Um, I think having some intentional language around what it is that you specifically as part of that, you know, micro community within the larger community, you know, what is the covenant you're making to this family? Um, and, and being able to, to have clarity around that, I think is, is helpful. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, one of the, the problems that the the consumerization of the church has given us is that oftentimes when we're thinking about 
um, small groups, we're thinking about putting together like like aged people. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think the the wisdom of you know the history of the church and just you know paying attention to life as we knew it on this planet would say that no, you really should have people at every stage in every group, right? Um, you know, because I know. For us, with a five and eight and nine year old, there are things that um, that we can share with someone who has a two year old um, that we have we have raised a five and eight and nine year old in the same world that they're raising that two year old in, whereas someone who maybe has a thirty year old, right. Like just, I mean, they raise their kids in a different worlds. Sure, right? Like there, there wasn't that, um, you know, conversation around personal screen time, right? Oh yeah. Um, you know, there there was a different conversation around, um, you know, youth sports on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights or right. whatever else, right? Um, but there are a whole bunch of things that as our kids become teenagers that we need people who've gone on before us to help us make sense of some of the things that never change. Sure. Right. Like puberty doesn't change. Oh, (laughs) death taxes and puberty. (laughs) Um, you know, having people who've navigated that ideally who've navigated it well, (laughs) But you know, also people who've navigated it poorly, who sure. who are thoughtful enough to be like, "Oh yeah, don't do this yeah, thing." Mess that one up. Um, you know, and and I think that's that's part of the the value of the church and and the body as God's given it to us yeah, is that we have um, this community of people with a shared desire um, to live into the fullness of who God has created us to be, um, and to raise children into the fullness of who God has created them to be. Um, because, you know, like we all have friends and um, we don't necessarily have the same goals for either ourselves or our children. Um, but ideally, you know, in, in the church, we have people who have a shared, uh, a shared sort of vision for, for what, what we hope to see in the future. Um, I think that's that's really important because yeah, like we've we've said, you know, now seven times in this podcast, you know, baptism's the beginning. It is the beginning. It is not the end. And you know, figured out how to how to get out of the blocks and yeah, not fall flat on our face into the cinders. A, a good thing. Absolutely. So if you're listening to the podcast and have other thoughts or questions about baptism, just send us an email at uh, Recovering Methodism at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Give us a five-star review. Pass it on to your friends. We'd love to to have some more folks listen and uh, love to hear from you. Yeah, and uh, a quick note on our, not the last episode that dropped, but the extra one that dropped on Sunday the 31st. Um, That was the prayer van that we did together as a church. And if you'd like to do that in your city... um, It'll be close, right? Like most cities have an outer belt that you can drive in about an hour. Sure, most cities do. 
Um, but also people who live in the rural areas have county roads. They could circle their county. That's right. Or, or their community. Um, what, what we did on Sunday, December 31st, is there was about 20 of us. Uh, we kind of carpooled around the city of Columbus around 270. Takes about 45, 50 minutes. I think you guys put together a 54-minute uh, little uh, content podcast for us to follow. It was wonderful. There were three people in our car, and we, we kind of sang together and prayed together and answered some of the questions and prayed around our city. And anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. And I'd like to see us do more of that. I thought it was well done um, and very helpful. Yeah. So if you saw it, it's like, what is this thing? And why Why isn't there any of the silliness I'm used to? That's why. That's why. But hey, we appreciate you listening today. And uh, we'll be back next week. Absolutely. Once again, Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. listening to the Recovering Methodism podcast. We hope your heart has been strangely warmed. Be sure to like, subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. God bless.